Thank you, Lucy, and uh, good morning, everybody. Please keep Ephesians uh, 1, the second half of that, open in front of you. On the wall in my office, uh, next to my monitor, it's just kind of to the right, is, is a printout of a painting uh, called Paul in Prison by Rembrandt. And, and it's of this greying apostle uh, with one hand to his mouth, he's lost in contemplation as the other hand holds a manuscript, a pen resting between his fingers. Sunlight's coming through a barred window off to his right and it, and it casts light across him as he sits on his bunk. Deep in the shadows, off to the side, leaning against some bundled scrolls, is a large sword. And it's a sword that is clearly symbolic of something, because I'm sure that Rembrandt was fully aware that they normally don't let you keep big swords in prison. Perhaps it's leaning against those texts, because it's maybe referencing what we read later in Ephesians, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Perhaps it's a haunting hint at Paul's future martyrdom. Maybe it's symbolic of Paul's continual battling for the saints in prayer. Now, I have that picture on my wall because it, I find it captivating. I picture Paul oblivious to the bars on the windows, pondering those that he's writing to, thinking about what he's going to say. Maybe he's even praying for them while he's writing. And it's a constant challenge that's right within my field of vision, right next to my monitor there, Underneath, uh, I've printed it, these words, Romans 1, 9 to 10, under this, under this picture. God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I think that's what I've got in my head as I see that picture from Rembrandt. But notice in those verses in Romans that he calls God as witness to how constantly he's praying for the Romans. It's no idle remark, it's no exaggerated pleasantry, he actually does it. And he doesn't just do it for the Romans. Again and again in his letters, Paul refers to how often he labours and how he contends for the churches in prayer and he does it again in our passage today. And so for me as a pastor, that's both challenging and also intriguing. First, it's challenging because I made promises to do this for our church when I was ordained and also when I was commissioned here at Christchurch. And yet so often, I struggle to concentrate, distractions flood in, emails, messages, notifications from my phone, conversations with people, other important things to do, general busyness, the sound of that bus that annoyingly keeps revving its engine on and on out the front of my window... If I called God as my witness, what would he testify to regarding my prayer life? What about you? But secondly, I find it intriguing. What does Paul pray for them? He had no WhatsApp giving him regular updated live prayer points, did he? He's praying as he remembers people. What's the content of his prayerful labour? How is he contending for the saints before God? Would his prayer sound like this? Bob comes to mind and so he goes, um, oh and Lord, I pray for Bob. I pray, um, uh, please, um, bless Bob. Yes, yes, bless Bob and bless Jane and, and bless Roger. Or does he actually have a goal 
for those he prays for, something that is filling his heart and mind, that he calls on the Lord of all the universe to work in them. You know, prayer is at at the same time one of the easiest and most difficult things for Christians to do, don't you find that? I mean, it's so easy because you can do it anywhere at any time. You don't need to be a poet, you don't need to learn special words, we can approach God with confidence because of Jesus, we don't even have to say anything out loud, we can pray with our minds and you know we even have the advantage of praying to a being that knows the requests of our hearts even better than we know how to put it into words. But in my experience, most Christians find it a struggle to do and they struggle to know what to pray when they do pray. And for many, our prayer habits are so poor that to call it a struggle is actually to flatter ourselves. Well, let me tell you, today's passage is going to help us and it's going to challenge us and it almost certainly is going to rebuke us. My prayer, and I mean that, I've actually asked God for this, is that God would use today's passage to transform the prayer lives of many in our church. They would fire up our hearts with the conviction that we can and should pray often and more deeply than we do and then move our wills to put lifelong habits in place to make sure that it happens and that that happens in response to today's passage. Not just for this week, but for the years to come. That's what my prayer is for today. Well, I told you last week that Paul changed his normal order of doing things when he wrote this letter. Normally, he follows up his initial greetings with a prayer of thanksgiving. But in Ephesians, what did we see last week? That he launches instead into a great eulogy, a cascade of praise to God, celebrating his amazing plan to conform all things in heaven and on earth under the Lordship of Christ. And that we, his redeemed people, are a magnificent, wonderful feature of that plan and so should be giving praise. Well, it is now that Paul puts in his prayer of thanksgiving. He does get to it and he gets to it now. In fact, you could say that it's the very first application of the great eulogy of verses 3 to 14. Apart from giving God praise in the first place, because of God's cosmic purposes, you know what you need to do? Pray. And in light of God's great plans, his prayer models for us two things. First, he models for us gospel-driven persistence in prayer. And second, he models for us gospel-driven depth in prayer. So first, let's have a look at persistence. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. So why does Paul pray for them? Well, his thanksgiving is for this reason. Now, that reason could be a response to the whole celebration of verses 3 to 14, but it's particularly in light, I think, of verses 11 to 14. Let me remind you of what they are. This is the bringing of Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Let's have a look at those verses again. In Him we were also chosen, Paul says, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory, right? 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Both to the praise of his glory together. Now, like many of you, I, uh, on Friday night, watched the Olympic opening ceremony and I know it wasn't quite up to what we normally get in non-COVID times. But you know, one thing about the Olympic Games that is really special is how so many different athletes from so many um, uh, different sports, different states of our country, um, different levels of fame, all become something, part of something bigger when they put on the green and gold, when they march into that stadium together under the one banner, no matter who they are, whether they're a millionaire tennis player or whether they're walking in alongside an anonymous badminton player. But for these weeks, they're teammates. And for the rest of their lives, they're fellow Olympians. That would be pretty cool going to the Olympics, wouldn't it? Well, that doesn't even light a candle to what we share as Christians. And what Paul celebrates here, Jew, Gentile, together, responding to the same gospel, sharing the same spirit, adopted to sonship together as a family in God, um, marked as God's precious possession, bringing him praise and glory and being able to do that together. That's fantastic. And, and so for that reason, ever since Paul has heard that these people are, are trusting the same Lord Jesus, that they've responded to the gospel and that they love as well all God's people, just like Paul does. More importantly, just like God has. When he hears about that, it fills his heart. He can't help but encourage him. Together they are part of God's great plan for the world. And that means that whenever he thinks of them, this reality wells up in response to the God who saved all of them and brought all of them together. So, of course, he's going to give thanks to the God who did that. Because he knows the glorious work that God is doing in the world, his fellow Christians, the evidence of that work, are never far from his heart or his mind. And that means that they're never going to be far from his prayers. Verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's what Paul is doing when he prays for them. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes about how the gospel changes the way that he views everyone and everything. He writes this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So every believer, every church of believers is a living example of God's redemptive work in the world. Their very existence is a cause for thanksgiving to God and, is, and is, makes them worthy of a place in our heart. So in other words, he doesn't think of people from a worldly point of view, as if this stuff around us is all there is. And the present moment is the only relevant moment. But he looks with gospel eyes 
Eyes that think of where people stand before God. Eyes that think of what's going to shape them for eternity. It's kind of the way, Paul, you could almost about say there's two kinds of people in this world. There are those that need to know Jesus and that there, is no, there are those that need to grow in Jesus. And that's going to govern what he prays for them. But there is something Paul says here that I want to hone in on particular. I have not stopped. Paul praying for the Ephesians is not a rare or occasional thing. He prays for them enough that he could describe it as something he's doing all the time. And they're not the only ones. We already saw early on in the talk that he does the same for the Romans. He also tells the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica. He tells individuals like Timothy that he's consistently praying for them too. And no doubt, he has on his heart and on his lips all of the churches. They're just the ones he mentions. And you might go, well, yeah, well, all right, yeah, but he's an apostle, right? Ah, true. But listen to the exhortations that the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned to speak and order his churches, says to the churches themselves. Romans 12, verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer later in Ephesians, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Philippians 4 verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Colossians 4 verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 puts it simply, pray continually. Their exhortations to the churches, right? Paul sets the example of regular, habitual, faithful devotion to prayer and he instructs Christians and their churches, which includes you and includes me, to do the same. That is what people who believe in a God who is truly sovereign, powerful and yet attentive and personal, that's what they'll do. That's what people who believe that He has loved them and redeemed them in Christ and whose great purposes are what truly matters in the world, that believe that believers across the globe are their spiritual brothers and sisters, while those who don't follow Christ are destined for God's judgment if they don't hear and respond to the Gospel. That's what people that believe that are going to do. You believe all of that, don't you? Well, among other things then, the question is, do you pray like you believe that? I want you to answer these questions in your head. With God as your witness, as He surely is, what numbers would you give here? How often do you pray? How often do you pray for other people? When you pray, how much time and attention do you devote to it? Have you got some numbers in your head? How close do those numbers come to Paul's instruction to be faithful or devoted in prayer? Does it approximate at all the word 
continually. Does it come within the ballpark, the neighbourhood, the same city as those words? And if not, what are you going to do about that? Now, no doubt many here are faithful in prayer. I know that there are. But here is what I suspect. I suspect that if Paul and many of the believers in the early churches knew how little many modern Christians prayed, they would shake their head in sadness and incredulity. When I consider some of the slacker periods of prayer in my own life, even as a pastor, I don't feel I could even look Paul in the eye, let alone the Lord Jesus. But even as you feel the challenge of Paul's example here, can I say as well, be inspired by it. For he also reveals that there is real life in his prayer. Praying for him is a vibrant demonstration of a heart that beats in relationship with God and his people. And that can be yours too. Notice Paul's tone here, he's bursting to pray. He can't stop being thankful, it's consuming him. He can't stop bringing people before God. He can't stop calling on God to do stuff for them. His constant prayer is not a chore for him, it's a passion. So because of their faith in Christ and love for God's holy people, Paul does not stop thanking God and he keeps remembering them in his prayers. All right, then, well, what does he pray for? You know how it is as the years go on, the stuff that you get tends to accumulate. And so that's, that's, that's why it's often so hard to buy gifts for people as you get older on their birthdays or at Christmas time. And you often resort to gift cards where they can buy their own stuff for Christmas because oh, they've already got that, they've already got that, they've already got that. Well, what were we told last week? As Christians, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. So what do you pray for the person who's got everything? Paul's answer, that they might actually know, right down to the depths of their being, exactly what they already have. Now, think about what things that you tend to pray for or pray for for others. Most likely they fall into one of two categories circumstantial and fundamental. By circumstantial, I mean the kind of prayer that relates to an immediate situation. You pray for someone who is sick, that they might get well. You pray for someone who's looking for work, that they might get a job. You pray that the incident between Fred and Jane and their neighbours would get resolved. So normally those sorts of prayers require specific knowledge of a person's situation. But then there's fundamental things, things that go beyond circumstance, core realities that are important to pray about regardless of a person's immediate situation. These are the kinds of things worth praying for, for any believer at any time and for every believer at every time. And that's the kind of thing that Paul prays for here. 
Now, Ephesians, as I've mentioned last week, is a general epistle, likely written to a number of different churches in the region of Ephesus and its surroundings. And as Paul remembers these multitude of believers, in light of the great purposes of God he's just talked about, he prays for something fundamental to faith, knowledge. First of all, he prays for one of the greatest things you can pray for, a deepening personal knowledge of the true and living God. That's, that's a thing worth praying for, don't you think? Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. Now, the beginning of verse 17, I keep asking... It's a reminder that this sentence flows off what Paul's just said about not stop give, stopping giving thanks and remembering them in his prayers. Well, this is the content of that continual prayer. Now, listen to the exalted language there. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, might give to you. He's petitioning none other than the glorious Father, the God who sent our Lord to save us, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is now our Father since we've been adopted to sonship through Jesus, like we learned last week. What's he going to ask this great God? Well, he asks this God for a gift for those that he's remembering in his prayers. God, would you give them something? And what is that gift? Well, it's something only he can give, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, of course, they already have the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that from verse 13. But he's asking that God's Spirit in them would be at work granting them increasing understanding, increasing clarity in their knowledge of God, fullness in their knowledge of God. So the great gift that Paul continually asks of God is that the glorious Father might make himself known even more to his already loved people. God is the most magnificent and wonderful being in existence. If you think about it, can there be a greater thing to ask God to give someone than a fuller, clearer knowledge of himself? That's a big prayer. What a gift. But an important part of that wisdom and revelation is knowing to the depths of their own hearts precisely what God has done for them. I love the expression that begins verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Now remember, this is a prayer. This is Paul asking God to do something in us. An act of revelation and wisdom by His Spirit that will help us to know Him more. And that is that God would help not just our minds to access or acknowledge the reality of these things, but that our hearts and our desires would be captivated by this knowledge. So, so the eyes of your heart being enlightened, it, it's the language of fascination, of, of realisation. It's literally like the truths might dawn on you. You know that, that expression? That's a visual heart image that it might dawn on us. 
Again, what a wonderful gift to ask for someone. Because an enlightened heart is going to be a transformed and life-filled heart. And there are three things that Paul asked God to enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know. And each of these in the original language begins with the expression, what is? So first, what is the hope to which he's called you? Paul wants Christian hearts to really see the wonderful hope that he's called us to and rest upon it and live towards it. Eternal life in his presence, perfected and worthy. Remember last week? He called us to be holy and blameless in his sight. And the hope of that is what he calls our hearts to know. He prays for our hearts to know that hope. Second, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people? Now, it's important to read this one carefully, lest we miss what Paul is speaking about. It's not the riches of our inheritance. No, this is a prayer that we might know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. The riches of His inheritance is in His holy people, the church. And that's why we read Exodus 34 earlier. That was where you read of Moses interceding for sinful Israel and he asks that they might be God's inheritance, that God might view these people as his inheritance, his treasured possession. This language of Israel being God's inheritance is seen throughout the Old Testament. Well, God's holy people now include the Ephesians, include Jew and Gentile together, everyone who is in Christ Jesus. So then what is Paul asking God to do for them then? Well, that our hearts might appreciate just how precious God's people are to him and the wonderful blessing it is to be part of that people. And this is something that he's going to expand upon a great deal in the rest of the letter. But the point is, an enlightened Christian heart is one that sees the riches of Christian fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what Paul asked God to give the Ephesians. And it's especially pertinent at a time when we can't meet together, isn't it? That God would enlighten our hearts to see how precious the gathering of God's people, his inheritance really is, and commit to it. And third, what is his incomparably great power for us who believe? The God who has called us to an eternal hope, the God who considers us to be his glorious inheritance, is the God who's got limitless power and is going to use that power on behalf of those who believe. And Paul says, I want God, can you let people know that? By your spirit, can they understand this? And as if to reinforce to hearts whose eyes are often less open than they should be on this front, Paul really doubles down on his language. Listen to that description. His incomparably great power for us. 
This is something our hearts need to know. If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, in language that is in keeping with the great eulogy with which he begins his letter, Paul reminds us of what incomparably great looks like. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It's resurrection from the dead power. It's exalted to the very heavens power. That's what's at work in those who believe. And to prove how incomparably great this power is, Paul does some comparing. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that's invoked, that's literally every name of naming, any name you might want to call upon that you believe has power to act, incomparable compared to the power that's working on your behalf because of the God who called you. And not only in this present age, but in the age to come. There is no opposition, no force, no power, spiritual or otherwise, that can rival God's power. And the power that he works to achieve his purposes in Christ, and Paul says he wants us to know and our hearts to know that he uses that power for us who believe him. And this is the point he returns to to finish his prayer. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. And what Paul's doing there is he's quoting one of the most majestic psalms that speaks of God's ultimate vindication of his great Messiah, his King. It's Psalm 110. Let me read the first few verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. It's not just a psalm of the Messiah's triumph. But do you notice it's the victory of the Messiah's people with him? Well, at the end of this prayer in Ephesians 1, look who benefits from God's appointment of Christ as head over everything, with everything under his feet. Three mind-blowing words for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Get the eyes of your heart around that. But there is one other detail I want us not to miss. It's the hope to which he has called you. It is the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And it is his incomparably great power. Paul says, I'm praying that God would work in you so that you will really grasp to the depths of your souls what it means to be in a relationship with him. So friends, here's the challenge. Pray bigger. Pray bigger. Pray like 
you actually know Jesus. Because you do. Pray like you know that others know Jesus. Because they do. And pray for people who don't know Jesus like you know that they don't know Jesus. But our prayers need to be bigger, don't they? If what people share in growth groups is any example, so often our prayers for one another are dominated by the circumstantial and too little do they cover the fundamental. And it is often shallow circumstantial at that. I'm tired at work, busy at home, I've got exams coming up. Now, don't hear me wrongly, I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever pray for these things or ask for prayer for them. But given the realities of who a person is in Christ and what he has called them to for all eternity, these are woefully shallow if this is all we cover in prayer or ask for for prayer. Could you imagine a Michelin-starred chef being on a meal roster for someone and then delivering them a can of tin spaghetti? That's what it's like to be in a relationship with the living God and only ask him to give your sister or brother some energy at work. But it takes two to tango, doesn't it? This is not just a challenge to what we pray for others, but what we ask for, for prayer from others. Even with respect to those circumstantial matters, let's give them an example. Pray for those matters like you know Jesus, as Paul does. Pray for how those circumstances intersect with faith, challenge godliness, create gospel interactions with the world. Let's take tiredness as an example. Tiredness can make us vulnerable to temptation. Pray about that. Tiredness can put us in danger. Pray about that. Tiredness can make us oblivious to the needs of others. Pray about that. Tiredness can make us snappy or rude and get in the way of our witness to our non-Christian family. Pray about that. So it's not that you don't pray for circumstantial prayers, you only pray for fundamental ones. You pray for circumstantial prayers like you know Jesus and like they know Jesus. If all you're interested is in is people not feeling tired, then tell them to go to bed. Tell them to stop overcommitting themselves and that'll fix the job. But if what you're wanting them to do is to grow in Christ, you're going to pray for more than that, aren't you? When you are praying, you're calling on the God who is working his incomparably great power for those who believe. So can I say pray bigger. Pray like you believe in that God. Friends, what God has called us to is huge and it really matters. So follow Paul's lead and pray like you know Jesus and pray purposefully and persistently that others might know him more deeply too. And if that's something that you're not doing now, start today.
Amén.